It's by the grace of God that you and I, as we survey our marriages right now, maybe find ourselves a little discouraged or worried. It's by that same grace that we can have hope. And so I want you to be hopeful this morning. I want you to be hopeful tonight and tomorrow. And I want you to be hopeful for the course of your marriage. Before I get into this third session, our last one for today, let me say again, thank you so much for allowing us to come. It's been a wonderful blessing. I've been very hospitable, so grateful to see some of you that we've known for many years, very grateful for your kindness towards us, and um, I'd love to make myself available after this session. If you've got any questions, I might be able to answer. Your pastors are probably a better resource than me, but if I can help you in any way, I'd be happy to do so. Well, let's open our Bibles one last time today to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll consider just one verse, and as you're turning there, let me point out a couple of resources that are available to you on your table. You'll find two different documents there. You've got them stapled. I think they may have been there yesterday. Uh, common ways in which husbands sin against their wives and common ways wives sin against their husbands. Uh, these are written by a dear friend of mine, Dr. Lou Priolo, and I've used these now for some time in counseling, and they've proven to be a really, really helpful tool, especially as it relates to what we're going to talk about in a few moments. So I want to encourage you to hold on to these, especially after this talk, and to consider employing these and using those, and um, maybe they'll be a benefit to you. But First Peter chapter 2, just one verse. I, I wish we had the time to mature the context of a couple of these things, but we don't for our purposes, um, so I'll leave that to your pastor to, to fill that in. As I think he's gone through First Peter here too. Yeah, I, I figured he had. But 1 Peter chapter 2, just one verse is our focus this morning, and it's verse 11. Let me read it, and then we'll get into it. Peter writes, Beloved, I, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So our third session is entitled The War Within, and I want to kind of give you that roadmap once again of what we're doing. We began with a simple and I believe a critical foundation, a devotion to God is primary, especially to the Christian life, but also to the application of marriage. My devotion to God will be reflected in my love for my neighbor, and my closest neighbor is my spouse. We moved on to talk about, okay, so what is that love supposed to look like? I mean, practically speaking, what does that mean for me in the context of this marriage that I'm in? Well, we define marriage by going to Deuteronomy 6, same words that Jesus used in Matthew 22, love is a choice filled or accompanied by emotions that we demonstrate. And the Apostle Paul gave us, I believe, a very helpful map uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 on what it looks like to demonstrate that love. And that's hard to do. But this is our goal, and this is the goal that we are to attain to with God's help, to aim towards with God's power. Well, I want to end this morning in our third session with asking another question. What happens when we don't do that? What's going on when I'm not loving my wife that way? What, what's likely the culprit when I don't love my spouse that way? Let me give a giant, a giant sort of asterisk or um, sort of caveat here before I move on. Please hear this in the right way. I, I'm not suggesting that within this dynamic world and within these broken bodies there are not very specific cases and extraordinary cases of hardship of abuse where one spouse is abusing another. I, I don't seek to try to blame someone's abuse on that person that's being abused. That's not my purpose here at all. And I could foresee someone could apply it that way if they were looking through that lens. But extraordinary cases aside, and just bringing back to sort of the normalcy of marriage, whether it's fevered pitch arguments, or whether it's I'm going to stay with mom for a week, or whether it's even something more latent and calm, the Bible does give us a picture of what's really going on when we're failing to obey the commands of God in general. I'm going to apply it specifically to failing to love our spouses in the way we've described in 1 Corinthians 13. So to do that, we'll go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, I'm sure you're aware, and, and it's probably a little bit more talked about where we live than here, and, and definitely on the West Coast in America than it is here, but with the coronavirus, there's a lot of fear, a lot of worry, a lot of panic down where we are. It's already affecting schools, and, 
people are making all kinds of crazy decisions. There's a lot of hype, a lot of panic, a lot of things going on. Some of it's justified and legitimate, and some of it may be, I don't know, maybe a little bit less so. But right now, if somebody finds himself, especially an adult, and especially an adult of any age, they find themselves with a cough and a fever and a runny nose, and they're not feeling well, they're going to the doctor. Otherwise, they may have stayed home. They're going to the doctor, and when they go to the doctor, they're going to the doctor for one purpose. Do I or don't I? They're wanting to know, do I have this deadly virus that everyone's talking about? So what's the doctor going to do? What's the nurse practitioner, whoever's their attendant, what are they going to do to discern whether or not you've got this virus? Well, they're going to take one of those specific kits that are used to test for this specific strain of this coronavirus. They're going to take a sample from you, and they're going to do this test, and the test is going to come back with a diagnosis. And we have every reason to believe so far, at least, that those tests are very reliable, and the diagnosis will likely be that, reliable. Now, could you imagine coming home from the doctor with a misdiagnosis? I could see that be problematic in two ways. One, if they told you you don't have it, but you do have it, imagine the havoc that could wreak as you infect other people. Or flip it, if they said you do have it and you don't actually have it, imagine the effects it could have on you internally. You and I would demand a right diagnosis. Well, the thing about the Christian life, and especially marriage, is that we're not super good at diagnosing problems. In fact, we're far less reliable than a blood test would be for the coronavirus. In fact, we're way down there. Maybe if there was a test included in a Cracker Jack box, that kind of level accuracy is typically what comes out of us because we sort of are predisposed to, to begin with our own innocence. We tend to look at conflict, especially in the context of marriage, and I'm taking this really narrow for this whole weekend to marriage, through lenses, and these lenses are very simple. They were made in not-my-fault town. They were produced by a team of folks called It's Your Fault. By the way, remember, this is what happened in the garden. When Adam was given the opportunity to confess his sin and repent, instead he said, no, God, it was her, the wife the woman that you gave me. And we tend to just continue in the way of Adam when it comes to, even as believers, accurately diagnosing what's going on. So what, what is likely behind my failure to be patient and kind and to bear with my wife and, and to suffer long? What's likely behind it? Again, there are some extraordinary circumstances. What are the normal ones? Well, the Bible tells us what this pattern looks like and who's to blame and what's to blame. Let's look at a couple of texts. Before we go back to 1 Peter, go to James, James chapter 4. James is going to tell us what likely is going on even before we get to the Peter text. James 4, verse number 1. Listen to what James says. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members... You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war. So, in a broad sense, of course, that can be applied to conflict in general. In a narrow sense, that can be applied to my conflict with my spouse. So, what's at the heart or foundation of my conflict? Well, it's a batter of wa battle of wants. I want A, she wants B. I want A so much, I'm willing to sin against her in order to get it. She wants B so much, she's happy to sin against me in order to get it. And now we have two people, each wants A, each wants B, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. It becomes sin not by having a desire, but by pursuing that desire at all costs. That pursuit, by the way, is called devotion or worship. And so this is where good desires can turn bad. And so let's say my desire is for peace or rest. That may not be a bad thing. In itself, it's not immoral. It's not sinful. It's not wicked. Go back to the picture of coming home from a long day at work. Let's say my mind, I just want some rest. I'm physically exhausted. I'm mentally, emotionally drained. I just want some rest. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sinful about that. But when I'm willing, to sin in order to get that, now it's gone from a desire to an idol. And my worship of that idol is seen in my willingness to do whatever it takes to get it. I'm devoted to it. 
James says that our conflicts are a result of our desires that are overflowing. Jesus says it another way. Go to Matthew chapter 7. He diagnoses the problem in a similar way from a different perspective, though. Same idea here. Matthew chapter 7. It's about conflict, as it were. It's about problems. It's about sin. It's about hurts. It's about offenses. Listen to Matthew chapter 7 says, beginning in verse number 3. Matthew 7, 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your own eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So James says that conflict comes from my warring desires that turn into idols and I worship them so much and I'm willing to sin against you to get them. Jesus looks at the same type of problem from a different perspective and he talks about my inability to see that it's my desires that are really the problem. My focus on even the smallest thing. He uses such an incredible metaphor here, such a clear word picture between a saw log and a speck of dust. I can be consumed with a speck of dust of a lack of grace or a lack of bearing in my wife's heart or my wife's life, and all the while I'm totally blind to my pridefulness, to my patterns of not being kind, to my being rude, to my being selfish. I can't see that because in that moment it's all about that speck. Jesus is teaching us what James taught us. We've got to rightly diagnose these problems. And the culprit according to James and Jesus, is likely right here. This is the part that I wanted to give a caveat for. Again, there are extraordinary circumstances with abuse, but notwithstanding those, the normal culprit is going to be, according to the Bible, right here. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, taking the same idea a step further, from out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He does that in order to show us that we are responsible not only for our thoughts, but also for our words. I cannot blame my words on you. In marriage, this is what it looks like to to demonstrate my failure to diagnose. It's when I blame my problems on other people. I did it because you did it first. Well, I wouldn't have talked to you that way if you wouldn't have said what you did. You always let me down. You never keep your word. You always break your promises. You never think about me. And so now I'm free to do this. That's my misdiagnosis on display. What's coming out of my mouth is what's in my heart. And what's coming out of my mouth is clearly bitter, it's graceless, and it's not bearing. But what we've done is we've sort, of, we've sort of found a way to excuse or justify our sinfulness by pointing at the speck in our brother's eye, or in this context, in our spouse's eye. But Jesus says we've got to focus, James says we've got to focus, and Peter says we've got to focus within. So why do I get so frustrated? Why am I often sharp or short-tempered? Why can I be so angry or resentful or bitter? Why can I use those cutting words the way that I know that will hurt her the most? Why can I use maybe just physical affection in a way that could be hurtful? Why, Why do I do those things? What's at the heart of that behavior? And what's at the heart of those thoughts? What's going on theologically? And one of the things we talk about a lot at our church, and I know your pastors do here, is the connection between theology and practice. And if you don't know what the Bible teaches about who God is, who you are, what Jesus has done, and what that means for you today, then you won't likely rightly diagnose what's happening. And so we want to constantly kind of address these things theologically. So for the theology nerds, this is the theology sermon. This is the one where we're going to ask ourselves, what's going on beneath the surface? We're going to dissect our anger, our bitterness, our hurts, all of these offenses. We're going to actually go to the Bible and say, what's really going on? What's behind these things? Because the Bible tells us, and I think it does so very clearly. He describes it in the context of a war, Peter does. And I I want to show you three dangers of this war. Go back to our text, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So first of all, I want to focus on the second part there under this heading, this war can fool us. He says abstain from fleshly lusts. Now theologically speaking, 
You and I, when we come to God, we experience the blessings and the benefits and the fulfillments of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 and all of God's promises to restore what was made wrong through the fall. We receive not only uh, the solution to our sinful past, our bad record, by receiving a new record, it's, it's covered by grace, it's forgiveness, but we also receive a solution for our internal problems. We have the external problem of a bad record of sins we've committed against God, that's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's called forgiveness. But we have an internal problem, and that's a bad heart. And that bad heart is solved through the doctrine of regeneration. We get a new one. God gives us a new heart. So when you and I stand before God and before our pastor and before the congregation, we get married, something spiritual happens that we cannot necessarily see. God makes the two one. We enter into this commitment, this covenant. Well, when you come to Christ by faith, also something happens spiritually that you cannot see. You and I receive a spiritual heart transplant. We receive now new desires and new affections and even new power. And that's the new heart that God gives to us. But the problem is we get a heart transplant, but we don't get a body transplant. We get a heart transplant, and so we get new insides inside of old, broken outsides. The Bible describes that as the old man or the flesh. This is the part of us that still wants to be like Adam. This is a part of us that still follows in the path of Adam. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. And this is the part that still calls good evil and evil good. This is the part that loves what God hates and sometimes hates what God loves. Theologically speaking, this is really the root of our problems. This is the flesh. So what does Peter say to do in response to this flesh that every Christian has? Well, he says, abstain from it. Abstain from it. The word is simple. It means to hold away or to hold oneself from fleshly lust. This is what Job did. When Job was commended by God to Satan, he's referred to as blameless and upright, one who feared God and who turned away from evil. Same idea. Job was characterized by his faith. No one is righteous outside of faith. By the way, when someone in the Old Testament is referred to as righteous, it's only because of faith that's not described there. We see that with Abraham and Moses and people like Job. But Job was also characterized not only by his faith, but by his persistence in turning away from evil. That's what Peter is talking about, abstaining from fleshly lusts. Now, this is a description of things inside of us. Peter's not talking about abstaining from triggers. This is a funny word we've brought into the Christian vernacular that we should never have brought in. Triggers refer to things outside of us that we can now blame for our actions. The Bible describes nothing of the sort. The Bible describes the source of our sins as internal and part of us, not externally that we can blame on others. Peter's saying to abstain from something inside of you, something that's at work in you, something that's always at work in you, and something that's at work for you in a bad way, something that's pushing you away from God, away from righteousness, and away from your spouse, at least in a godly way. Peter says that you and I have to work hard to abstain, to push away. This struggle, this internal struggle, this is what's behind my anger. It's behind my short temper. It's behind my bitterness. It's behind my impatience. It's behind my selfishness. This anger, this, this selfishness, it's all fueled by this lust. This passion that's directed by or shaped by or molded by the flesh. Peter calls them passions of the flesh. Some translations use the word lust. Now, passions can be good, right? We want you to be passionate for Christ. We want you to be passionate about your marriage, passionate about your job, your kids. I mean, so it can be good. Here, though, Peter's referring to passions in a bad way. And I want to I kind of take that in a subcategory. So Peter's talking about abstaining from things that are bad. But it can mean things that can be good. So here's what I mean. Of course, he means sexual immorality. He means selfishness. He means anger. But he also means abstain from fleshly lust like wanting peace and rest at any cost. So on its face, it's good. But when I'll go for it at any cost, even the cost of my own wife, it's now bad. So Peter's calling me to abstain, to, to fight against these fleshly lusts. Because these passions are all, they all hold one thing in common. They're all self-centered. 
None of them are about Christ. None of them are about my spouse. They're all about me. And so that's why Paul says, or Peter says, put these away. Again, go back to our culture. Our culture says that you found freedom, you found liberation when you've just embraced self, self, self. And Jesus is over here in the Bible saying, I literally died because that's your problem. Your biggest problem is that you're about yourself, and I died so you'd be free from that. What on earth are you doing running back to it? And so you can be sure when the culture is calling that way, they're calling out in an anti-Christ way away from the gospel. Now we get examples of what this process looks like in Galatians chapter 5. Let's turn there. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. What does it look like for these passions, this flesh, to be at work in our hearts? We're talking about something in our minds, something internal. This is the program working behind the scenes, but it somehow has power over the desktop and it has power over our ability to launch other programs and to execute other actions. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Again, walking in the Spirit is not some weird, ethereal, emotions-based, man, I'm just in the Spirit, man. No. Walking in the Spirit is making this conscious decision day by day, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to put to death my flesh. And here's what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. Verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. So whatever Peter's going to say about the flesh, we already know now that this is the opposite of what God wants us to do. So the reason Peter's saying fight against it is these are impulses that are the opposite of God's will. This is not what the Bible teaches. This is not what will make your marriage better. It won't make your life better. It might feel that way for a moment, but whatever these things are, the spirit is against them. Listen to what he says. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, here they are, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, and it goes on and on and on, and I hope right now you're recognizing, oh my goodness, many of those things are at the heart of my conflict and my marriage right now. And they came from, they were motivated by, they were driven from the passions of the flesh. These are a lifelong battle for us who are in Christ. Go back to 1 Peter 2. This is not something that you might face at some time. This is something that you and I will face all the time. We must work hard to abstain from these fleshly lusts that every Christian will have to focus on. The reason that we've got to work hard to focus on these and identify them is that sometimes they make so much sense. A friend of mine wrote this. Our desires deceive us because they present themselves as so plausible. Natural affections become warped and monstrous and so blind us. Who wouldn't want good health, financial comfort, a loving spouse, good kids, success in the job, kind parents, tasty food, a life without traffic, control over circumstances? Yet cravings for these things lead to every sort of evil. The things people desire are delightful as blessings received from God, but terrible as rulers. They make good goods, but bad gods. They captivate, promising blessing, but delivering sin and death. And there he was talking about how our fleshly lusts and demands for some things that are otherwise good, when they take control of us and they drive us, now they become our gods. So my desire to be happy, to be right, and not to be bothered, to get my way, to have an orderly and quiet home, to be able to relax a little bit, to have a little respect in the home. Those things on their face can be good. But if I'm not careful, I won't recognize that the flesh is raging behind pushing those things. Yeah, you should be respected more. Yeah, she should talk to you the right way. Yeah, your kids should spend more time focusing on you. Yeah, this should be more about you. And now this thing that otherwise was good has all of a sudden revealed its ugly face. It's a fleshly lust, and it wants to do something. So that falls into the second heading. Not only will this war fool me, but this war wants to ruin me. Go to the last part of verse 11. He says, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now, the good news here is by Peter telling us to do this, we must be empowered to do it, not on our own strength, but through the indwelling presence of the 
power of God, the Spirit of God. We are able to do this, and this is something we must do. And so the picture is sort of of the kid that goes fishing. Down south, we have a lot of these uh, invasive species, and they're all over all the waterways. And if you've been to South Florida, it's just all waterways everywhere. And there are all these invasive species, and some of them look really crazy. And so we've got these giant snakeheads that can be like four or five feet long. They're massive. And we've got these alligator gar that look like they're out of prehistoric times. And they've just got mouths filled with teeth, and it's just incredible. And so when you get one of these bad boys out of the water, you got to be really careful with it. Because even though you, you hooked it, it wants to hook you. And the same thing's true about these fleshly lusts. They not only want to appeal to you, they want to grab you, pull you out of the water, and slap you against a rock and just ruin your life and your marriage. In the moment, it feels enticing, just like that hook does, just like that bait does to a fish. Hey, this looks good. Hey, I mean, I should be respected. Hey, I mean, sexual pleasure is a gift that God's given me. Hey, I should, want to, I should want to have my wife listen to what I have to say once in a while. These things are good. Next thing you know, they begin to consume you and control you. You're willing to sin to get them, and boom, you're in conflict. And they begin to really do a number on you. Sinful passions can ruin you in this way. They can ruin relationships, destroy your marriage, develop deep bitterness, and hurt your relationship with your kids and so much more. But notice what he says about this. He says that these passions wage war against your soul. This is a rule for those of us that are Christians. I I brought a resource here. I think Pastor Mike may share how this could be available to you that I wrote and that we use at our church along with some other resources. And it's got nine core biblical doctrines and seven points about each one of them in simple form that any church member can understand. We want to keep these in our Bibles and have them handy. But two of the things on here are the doctrine of spiritual growth and the doctrine of change. And we talk a lot about what it looks like as a Christian to grow in respect to sin and holiness and and develop in Christ-likeness and begin to reflect him more and more. It requires a recognition of this war. You and I have an enemy. Peter knew that enemy well, right? Peter failed multiple times. And it's Peter that told us, listen, your adversary, he says, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to use your flesh in order to destroy you. This is always at work in the life of the Christian. Peter said that, not Mark. Look at the words. It wages war against your soul. This is a rule. This is not a war where there's a surrender. There'll be no peace treaty. There'll be no end. There'll be no conquering of me of this war. The only conquering is of that war over me. This is something that's always happening. So if I find myself embroiled in this conflict and I'm angry at my wife, I'm bitter towards her, the first likely suspect is not her, it's me. And the reason I got there is because there's a war going on inside me. And that war is the old outsides warring against the new insides. Peter calls that the flesh. Notice how he personifies them. This is interesting. They wage war against the soul. We're talking about thoughts and impulses and desires. But now he's picturing them as an army uh, sort of contingent coming against you and knocking on your door. They're, they're prepared for battle. They have their weapons ready. They've been trained, and they are relentless. They'll stop at nothing. They have come not to enlist you, but to destroy you. Peter wants us to feel the effect of the power of the flesh in the life of the Christian. Peter says they wage war against the soul. Now, the word soul here, in the Bible, it can refer to the inner man, but it can also refer to man in general, and here that's what he means. Because while it starts internally in the mind, its desires destroy you thoroughly, even outside of you physically. Your relationships, your body, etc. That's the idea here. It wages war against your soul. We saw with Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that it leads you to do things you don't want to do. Romans chapter 7, Paul says the same thing, talking about the flesh, talking about sin itself, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. He uses the same imagery and the same language. This is what it looks like when you and I are embroiling ourselves in these battles with our family, with our spouse, with our loved ones. But let's ask a question, what does it look like to lose this war? So if the war is raging, what does it look like to lose it? Here's what it looks like to lose it. Go back over to James. Let's look at James chapter 1. I want you to see what it looks like to lose this war. This pattern isn't something that's new to me. This is something that's been around for many years, but I want to borrow it. But this is what it looks like to lose this war. It starts with desire. 
James 1, beginning in verse 14, starts with desire, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So it starts with desire. It starts with something that I want. It starts with something that is a seed at first, but then it grows and grows and grows, and it might be something simple like physical satisfaction. It might be something simple like peace or respect or grace or whatever it is, and it starts so simple and it seems so innocent. And the desire can go one of two ways. It can terminate itself in trusting God, or it can become my God. And when it becomes my God, it moves on to the second step. Because now it's not just something I want, it's something that I now, in my mind, and we say this a lot, and we shouldn't say this, I now need it. We've got a whole list of things, even as churchgoers, where we say, I need this. And we ought to be really careful, we ought to really think about where that list came from. Because what might be happening is we might be codifying, we might be enshrining into law what is really nothing more than the flesh, fleshly lusts that are underneath so the second step is deception. It turns into deception. It started with just a simple desire, but now it goes, it goes to more than that. We start to justify it, rationalize it. Yeah, I mean, she always does respond that way. Yeah, she always does do this. Yeah, I mean, she never does give me that. Yeah, I, I should have this in my house. I, I should get more respect. I, I should be able to go out with the guys and spend the weekend away. I should be able to have sex when I want to have sex. I should, these things should happen. It's just a desire at first. It has two ways to go. When it becomes my God, now it starts to deceive my heart. And now I start to, in my mind, rationalize it. And I start to think, yeah, I deserve this. Yeah, I need this. I, I've got to have this. Third step is design. It goes from desire to deception to design. Now I'm making plans. Now it's playing out in my mind. I can see it happening now. Here's how it's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. When I come home, I'm sitting everybody down because I'm tired of this. I've had it up to here. I've had enough of that. Throw out what the Bible says about bearing all things. No, I, I bear to this point. And so now we're going to talk, and I'm going to lay down the law, and things are going to go my way now. Or, or, or perhaps it's, it's much worse. Well, well, she's giving me attention. My wife won't give me. And we've been 20 years married, and I know she's not going to start giving me now, and she's giving to me now. So you know what? I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pursue that. And this is the way I'm going to pursue that. And I'm going to get my needs met. You ever heard something like that? I'm going to get my needs met. We ought to be really careful using that language. And then it moves to disobedience. This is when we're in full-blown sin. This is where we take that step into disobeying God, take that step into worshiping this idol we've set up, this demand that we've got to have. We're yelling at each other. We're lying to each other. We're hiding our sin. We're, we're pretending we're, we're one place. We're not that place. And then guess where it leads? Go back to verse 15. When it is full grown, it brings forth death. So the last step is destruction. This is what happens when your plans to succeed. The worst thing that can happen when your fleshly lusts get their way is that they succeed. Because at the end of that, there's going to be destruction. Many of you here, some of you have already talked to me about this, and this is a fact for all of us. You know that on the other side of sin in your marriage, there is destruction. And while there is forgiveness and grace, sometimes there are long-standing consequences. Sometimes you have to live with them forever. And you know what I do? Let me just add this. You know what I do if I sin against my wife in a way that, yes, it's covered by the blood, and yes, we can move forward? I now have given my wife a brand new temptation she'll have to face for the rest of her life. Remember what, what Ephesians 5 said? I'm supposed to love my wife in a way where she becomes more like Jesus. Jesus died and he, he washed her and he sanctifies her so he can present to God a pure virgin. Well, if I sin against my wife in the wrong way, I, I present to her a temptation she's going to face the rest of her life and, and the devil will use it or flesh will use it and bring it back up. Remember when he did this? Remember when he did this? Remember when he said this? Remember when he went this way? And I did that. Remember when I said it's dynamic? It is dynamic because sometimes I add to even what the flesh and Satan's doing by my sinful decisions. This war can ruin us. And you know people that have been ruined this way. One of my closest buddies from Bible college, I remember he and I went to school together. We sort of believe all the same things together. We studied the same things together. We went our different ways after Bible college. And 
We remain friends, but somewhat distant. You know, he lives far away from me, at least, you know, a good long drive away. And so we communicated before text by email and then by, e- by text now. And remember a few years ago, we came to a point where we were going to visit him. Actually, it was several years now. And we went to his house and we were talking. And I know that in the past, he'd had some rocky parts with his marriage. He and his wife were, were sort of given to arguing and, 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 and they could fight pretty good and, and shout and sort of tussle with the best of them. And, and I know that it had really taken a toll on their marriage. been married probably about 10, 15 years by that time. And went out to the front porch and we start talking. And I had one of those moments where I'm having a conversation and the whole time I have it, I'm like, is this real life? Is this happening? Because as we're talking, he starts to tell me, yeah, you know, things haven't been good with my wife. You know, Mark, it's not what you think it is. It's been far worse. And you know, it's, it's gone so far that, um, that I think I'm going to leave her. And, and you know, with that, I'm not, I'm not just going to leave her. In fact, I, I was able to reconnect with a girl from high school. And we've been talking. And, and she lives down in Florida, and he was in Georgia, North Georgia. And he said, and, uh, I'm, so, I'm planning to go see her. And th- this is a close friend. I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, this is a practical joke, like a terrible practical joke. But he, he, he was so convinced of this. He went one step further. He said this. He said, and I know this is God's provision because if God didn't want this to meet my need that I wasn't having met at home, he wouldn't have had her pop up on my Facebook feed. Now that sounds ridiculous. As a pastor, I have heard things that ridiculous and even worse because the flesh has the power to make you think like the devil and do anything to get what you want. For weeks, I, I was just Abundant over this, broken, devastated. I would, I would just, what are you talking about? Taking him to the scripture, rebuking him, just, this is insane. I went to his pastor, all this stuff going on over and over. And it wasn't until months later, praise God, he didn't consummate this relationship with this girl, that I was able to talk to him. And through repentance, he was able to reconcile his marriage. And when I talked to him, he said, I have no idea how I got to that place. I could not even begin to tell you how I got there. I know where I was, but how I got there, looking back, is insane how I got there. I don't even know. And I, I can't even envision myself getting there again, but I know I was there. Beloved, if you underestimate the power of the flesh, you are a fool because it can ruin you. And it starts out in such innocent little ways. And at first, it's just you want some respect. Next thing you know, you've left your wife and you've got a new wife. And Peter tells us the whole time, it wasn't your first wife's fault in not giving you respect. It was your fleshly lusts. And they didn't just wage war, but they won. Thirdly, we'll end with this idea, they can not only fool us and ruin us, they can expose us. I skipped the beginning of the verse. Go back to 1 Peter 2.11. They can expose us. Look at what he says in verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Listen to the pastoral tone here of the word beloved. We use this a lot in our congregation. We feel like it's a biblical term and it expresses the way that we feel about the congregation that we are entrusted with. Peter is is admonishing them. It's theological, it's critical, it's imperative. He's talking about real dangers, but but they may not fully understand the danger. So he says, beloved, listen to me. Listen, I love you. And it's because I love you that I'm getting this serious. And not only am I getting this serious, it's because I love you I'm getting this technical. Because you don't think this is a big deal, but I'm telling you what's going on is far much of a bigger deal than you think. In fact, it's spiritual. It's not, you don't even understand what you're doing. In your mind, you're like the little kid. You just want the ice cream. And mom says no. And so you throw a fit. Or you go to dad. Or you go somewhere. You just want the You don't know what's happening. And Peter says, listen, don't you understand? This is the opposite of what the Holy Spirit wants for you. And it's warring against you. And if you don't work to be like Job, who turned away from evil, if you don't work to, to abstain from or put to death, as Paul would say in Colossians and Ephesians, the deeds of the flesh, they will destroy you. And it shouldn't be true about you because you're a Christian. And what Peter is saying is that Christians are the ones that fight the flesh. That's what we do. Look at the way he describes them. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Some translations use the idea of aliens. Paul says, listen, you're not of this world. You you, you can't act like the world. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, 
to fight against the flesh. Paul says in Romans 8, 6-8, that this is a fight that every Christian is supposed to be embroiled in. Consider these words. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is at enmity with God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Peter's point here is that Christians are not supposed to just merely be aware of this battle, but engaged. There can be no spiritual conscientious objectors. There can be no one that goes AWOL and that's derelict of duty. If you are born again, you're enlisted in this battle and you fight. That's what we do. We are in this fight. To not be in this fight, Peter is going to argue, is to not be a pilgrim and a sojourner. It's to be a citizen of the world. And to be a citizen of the world is not to be a citizen of the kingdom. Peter is saying, essentially, this is what Christians do. It's part of our DNA. And when you and I give up, when we give in, when we don't fight this way, we are living just like lost people. Because lost people are characterized by embracing these fleshly lusts. In fact, we live in a world now where people are defined by these. You know that, right? People are now defined by what they want the most. It should never be true among us because often what we want the most is contrary to what God wants. And it's not God's design, it's Adam's design. It's because of the fall. We're to put to death those things that are not godly, they're not honoring to him. Notice, though, remember what he's talking about. We're supposed to be like kingdom citizens, not like citizens of the world, but in our mind. He's not just talking about behavior at this point. He's talking about our mind. We can't even think the way the world thinks if we want to honor God. If you want to apply apply it to your marriage, you can't think about marriage the way the world thinks about marriage. You will find no shortage of friends on the job who are either culturally Christians or, or just Christians in name only or lost altogether would say, yeah, absolutely, your wife should do that for you. shouldn't do that for you. Man, I'd get a new one. Your husband should do that. If he doesn't do that, he's terrible. You should get a new one. You, you will find no shortage of that language in this world today. Peter says you've gone to the wrong counselor. You and I can't even think that way. Think of David. What was David called? He was called a man after what? God's own heart. He failed with Bathsheba, but who would still call him a man after God's own heart if he would have continued to fail with Bathsheba? Nobody. We call him a man after God's own heart because after the fail, what do we have? We have Psalm 51. We have his repentance. We have his fighting against the flesh. He was embroiled now in the war on the positive side. And sometimes, in fact, I would argue many times you and I have failed in this battle. In fact, I'm arguing that at the heart of your arguments and your conflict and your offenses is just that, a failure to win this battle. So let's not look at the failures and start to say, well, I'm better than you, you're worse than me, etc. To show that you're in the fight is to show that you're one of God's and to show that you have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You and I cannot ignore it. Look at this picture. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. If you're sitting in that same dining room where I started and you're having that meal and that rain's coming down, you see it coming through your wall and your window and you're focused on that and a literal army rolls up to your driveway and knocks on the door with guns and pulls out a battering ram, you're not gonna ignore them and focus on the water unless you're a fool. You're going to recognize I've got a problem. There's a war. There's an army outside. I cannot ignore this problem. Well, as Christians in our marriages, we can no longer ignore the power of the flesh to drive us to be selfish and to be hateful and unkind and bitter and not to bear with our spouses, to execute justice and to uphold our law. We cannot continue to ignore it. We have to be aware of it, and more than that, we have to be engaged in the battle. We've got to fight against the flesh, so how do we do it? Well, the secret to fighting against the flesh was found in Galatians 5, and it's it's recognizing that we can't defeat that army no sooner than we could defeat an army that knocks on our front door. You and I can't defeat this alone. Men, if you think you're going to beat that pornography problem just by trying hard, and I'm going to say this in love, you're a fool. It may be worse. You and I cannot defeat the power of the flesh 
without the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, no, no, go back to what we said before, where your pastor said, you neglect this right here, the Word of God. You neglect the fellowship of the saints. You neglect worship in times of prayer. Guess what happens? You're going to become weaker and weaker and more and more carnally minded. And now you're not going to think that this flesh is warring against you. You're going to think that's the Spirit. And you'll be like my friend and start blaming things like God sending some girl to your Facebook page on God. And that's always going to be your fault. And it's going to be a failure of you walking in the Spirit. You want to talk about walking in the Spirit? Daily die to self. Daily spend time in the Word of God. As Paul says in Romans, you've got to have your mind transformed and renewed by the Word of God. I've got to consistently allow this book to read me. If I don't, my flesh will end up ruling the day. I've got to yield to the Spirit. Paul says this way in Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's a secret. But walking in the Spirit is not necessarily merely an experience. It is like love, a decision. And that's why it's offered. If it was merely an experience that had to be drummed up for you, you and I could not abstain from the flesh unless that was drummed up for us. But walking by the Spirit, because it's the thing that keeps me from walking the flesh, must be something I can do. Regardless if I have smoke or lights or the right setting, I can do this. It's a decision that I make. And I make it every day. Sometimes I make it every hour of every day. Imagine, it's like this. I put my Bible right here. I'm going to walk in the Spirit right now. Guess what happens? Through the flesh, the devil, through the world, it starts to slide down. Whoop, i got to put it back up there again. Uh, five minutes later, I'm already thinking about myself. Boom, it's going back down again. Oh, i got to do it again. I've got to consistently make this decision. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to honor what the Spirit wants to have honored in my life. And I'm going to do it in His help. So God... I need your strength right now because my desire is to be angry. My desire is to be bitter. My desire is to hold this against my wife, but I know that's not honoring to you because that breaks the gospel. So I need your help right now. Help me, Father, not only to just wait on you to help, but help me to go to the word of God and allow the word of God to begin to dictate. That's why, by the way, it's called a light to my path. It directs the way that I should respond. Not just on what car to buy, but on whether or not to be mad at my wife and how to love her with the love of Christ. Let me end with a few thoughts and I'll be done. Number one, where does your citizenship lie? If your citizenship lies with the Lord, then you and I are enlisted in a battle and we have no excuse and we must be engaged. Number two, Are you willing to begin to accept responsibility for your role in the conflicts and the issues present in your marriage today? That's what Jesus and and James and Peter are making painfully clear. So often in marriage, this is what I hear. I hear, well, you know, he started this way and so I started to go this way. And so sometimes what I'll do is just sort of resonate what they've said back to them. So let me clarify what you're saying. What you're saying is you've done this because of what he's done. Is that right? Well, when you say it that way, pastor, of course, that's not what I mean, but, but yeah, so it is what you mean. It's the same thing that's behind when you're driving in this crazy traffic and someone cuts you off and you get angry and your wife says, what's wrong with you? What do you do? It's this fool in front of me. It's his fault. It's not my fault. You can't be mad at me for getting angry and saying something I shouldn't have said. It's clearly his fault. Well, no, it's, it's clearly your fault. All this person did was create an environment where the real you come out. And in the home, it's the same way. You get angry, you blow your top, you fly off the handle, you go to work, well, I got mad at my wife because she did this. Whoop, 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 whoop. We've gone wrong here. That sentence should be, I got mad at my wife, full stop. End of sentence. Because when you kept going, what you did is you blame shifted just like Adam did in the garden. You didn't take responsibility and you're not likely to change. And your marriage isn't likely to get better because you're still seeing it as someone else's fault. I'm not suggesting your spouse isn't sinning against you too. She probably is. He probably is. I'm not saying that's not happening. What I'm saying is we are not innocent parties because we're also at war, each of us. Every husband, every wife, The flesh is waging war against our soul. The question is going to be, are we willing to accept responsibility? And sometimes here's what we do. I hear this all the time. This is so common in the church. Here's something about marriage. 
And the wife is like, I'm ready. I want to honor God. But he's over here sleeping. He's over here on his phone looking up his tea time. He's texting with his friends, yeah, I can't wait to get out of here and, and, and we'll hook up later. And so what does the wife do? The wife says, well, I'm not going to do anything because he's not willing to do something. And maybe it's the other way around. Well, let me admonish you. Wives, husbands, if you're in that boat, listen, you want to improve your marriage? You can't change your spouse. If you're just now finding that out, I really feel terrible for you. Someone should have told you that a long time ago. You will never change your spouse. That's God's business. But what's more important is you being changed. And that's between you and God. And praise God, you can do that. And God's eager to make that happen in your life. Number three, we'll end with this. Are you truly fighting this fight? Or the lust of the flesh essentially driving you and controlling you? A lot of times the marriages have really broken down. We've gotten 20, 30 years in. We've got some really unhealthy patterns. By the way, don't think because you're still living together you've got a godly marriage. That just means that you might be roommates. You can be roommates with people you despise. As a pastor, I've heard so many times of people, we've been married 50 years, pastor, and go to visit them. They live in separate rooms. They have separate bank accounts and separate lives. They basically despise each other. But just for the sake of religion, they've hung on. The question is whether or not you're actively fighting or you've just given up. The easy way is to give up. So I want to implore you, and I know your pastor would say the same thing. If you've given up, get back in the fight today. Fight against the flesh and allow God to do something miraculous in your marriage. Father, we need that, and I pray that you would help us in that way. Father, we're asking for reality. I am in my marriage. We want something real, Lord, not something that's contrived or just lasts for a moment. And you're the only one that can do that. And so we've seen the importance of devotion to you and how it's reflecting the way we love our spouse. We've seen how we're supposed to love our spouse and now we've seen what it, what's really happening spiritually, theologically, behind the scenes when we're not loving our spouse. We're, I'm so tempted to blame my wife The scriptures say over and over again that I should be recognizing my own blame. So help me, Father, to focus on myself. And with your help, to confess my sins, repent of my sins, to put to death those old ways, and by the power of the Spirit, to put on the new man and honor you. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.